Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. My name's Carl Truman. I teach in the Department of Biblical and Religious Studies at Grove City College in the beautiful and wonderful Western Pennsylvania. And I'm here as always with my friend, the Reverend Todd Pruitt, pastor of uh, Harrison, what's the name? Covenant Presbyterian Carl Church in Harrisonburg. How long have we known each other? Right this time, Harrisonburg. Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg, Pennsylvania. Yeah, I, Carl, I get it. I get Virginia. it. I am not. I am not a best-selling Virginia. author. I, I don't travel the globe <laughs> with with again? millions of adoring fans. I wasn't just at at you know lecturing at, at Notre Dame a couple you know yesterday. I, I get it. You're you're a busy man. I'm. I can't I'm insignificant. Be to remember the names and, and 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 careers of all the little people that cross exactly. my path. Exactly. And, and I don't so. expect I don't expect that from you. So we're all good. <laughs> We've only been doing this for like. 15 years. Something like that. Something. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. He's pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg in the great state of Virginia, not Pennsylvania, as I've said a few mm-hmm. moments ago. Well, it's great That's to have correct. you all with us today. Today, I want to talk, we want to talk to a couple of gentlemen who've just published a book on the topic of neo Calvinism. So, I want to introduce our guests. They are the Reverend Corey Brock, who is one of the pastors at St. Columbus. Free Church of Scotland in Edinburgh. The Free Church, of course, was the denomination uh, in which my wife and I met and where I served as an elder in the Aberdeen uh, uh, Bon Accord congregation. And the other guest is an old friend of mine. Indeed, he was a member of the congregation that I served as pastor uh, just outside Philadelphia, uh, Dr. Gray Satanto, who is assistant professor of systematic theology at the Washington, D.C. campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. Great to have you gentlemen with us. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Great. Well, uh, Gray, perhaps you can kick off. Tell us, uh, what is it that that inspired you to write this book? Yeah, thanks so much for that. Um, I think a few factors. One is uh, when we consider people using the term neo-Calvinism out there just in the theological literature and even in the non-theological literature, there's a lot of confusion about it. It's associated with transformationalism, post-millennialism, triumphalism, a kind of um, maybe naive understanding of human transformation of society, especially Christian transformation of society. And um, recognizing that when we're we're reading these caricatures, reading these critiques of neo-Calvinism, descriptions of neo-Calvinism, that it really doesn't line up with the primary source material um, not even with regards to Abraham Kuyper, and especially not with Herman Bovink. So even during seminary at Westminster, I would hear critiques of neo-Calvinism, but then people would say, well, I like Bovink, but I don't like neo-Calvinism, allowing, therefore, neo-Calvinism to be defined beforehand, rather than recognizing that Bovink is a progenitor of neo-Calvinism, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think what happened is that there are receptions of neo-Calvinism, especially in the Anglophone world, and maybe even in the Dutch world as well, um, that has been the marker of neo-Calvinism for 
North American, some Asian and also Dutch mines, rather than actually the primary sources. So, so the downstream receptions have come to define what the movement is rather than the original primary sources. And so um, that's one reason. And secondly, I think there's, there's ironically not much dogmatic literature on neo-Calvinism. So when we take a look at the literatures by neo-Calvinists themselves, especially in the recent, more recent decades, you see treatises on philosophy. You think about, for instance, Alvin Plantinga or Nicholas Wolterstorff in that regard. You see treatises even on missions like Michael Goheen's work. You see treatises on uh, public theology, but not again so much on systematic theology and the dogmatic literature. And I think that's a that's a misstep. Perhaps it's because Bobbing has just recently translated. Not much of Kuiper was recently was was translated until very recently. So we wanted to fill in that gap and show them that actually, first and foremost, it was very much a theological movement. It was a confessional movement. It was rooted in the Catholicity of Christianity. And it's not meant to be a thin cultural engagement without that dogmatic mooring. And we wanted to show that from the primary sources. And that's why we wrote this book. Mm -hmm. Do you think then that some of the criticism of neo-Calvinism comes from the the intuition that it leads to a sort of doctrinal downgrade. You know, That's somebody right. would say to me, neo-Calvinism in North America. I think of certain colleges that have been very identified with it, that have you know, have drifted in some ways very far from mm -hmm. not only theological, but also ultimately Christian moral principles as well. So you think it's a sort of it's the popular image of neo-Calvinism that has really subverted uh, subverted its its image as a as a theological good, if I could put it that way. I, I think so. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That was interesting. Uh, as as I was reading your book, which I found really helpful, by the way, brothers, um, uh, was that uh, you you give a, an explanation, a history, and 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 an explanation of neo Calvinism, which differs quite a bit from the caricatures. Um, which maybe a couple of years ago I didn't realize were caricatures or um, certain manifestations of neo-Calvinism that, you know, and Carl uh, alludes to some of that. And so it's, it's helpful in that way. Let me ask you, so, you know, so Bavink comes along and, and some others and, and they're looking to, to engage um, uh, philosophically and, and in some other ways that they felt that Calvinists and reformed theologians and reformed thinkers and churchmen ha hadn't been doing well. Did 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 Bob Inc. and then and then Kuiper did did they see their project as differing from or veering from at all? Maybe what in previous generations Calvin and then you know the next generation of Calvinists had been doing, or or did or did or did Bob Inc. and others see that they were trying to recover something that. Calvinist theologians and churchmen had had stopped doing or forgotten about. Did they see did they see their project as more of recovery or something kind of new? Yeah, thanks, Todd. Um, I think they saw it as an ongoing work of reformation, mm -hmm. and uh, in that work of reformation, they were applying what they thought were Calvin's own principles, but doing it necessarily in an age that Calvin never saw and could never right. understand. Um, and so one of the things that uh, pushes, I think, the neo-Calvinist movement, we, we might think of this as a proto-neo-Calvinist moment, is uh, th the rise of this Christian national 
a political party mm -hmm. just after the Spring of Nations in 1848. Um, I think the Spring of Nations uh, after the Industrial Revolution became a moment in which um, a group of these Dutchmen realized that theology had had to to answer different questions than ever before. I mean, one of the questions that was provoking them was what to do with the concepts of the establishment. And um, and so th they see it as the ongoing work of reformation in order to speak to a particularly modern age. And mm -hmm. for them, that modernity was marked by uh, philosophically a post-Kantian mindset, a turn to the self, and um, politically, uh, the the rise, the spring of nations was was a huge moment uh, that that created that. And so, um, the, the rise of the university was another major factor right. in all this. And uh, Kuiper, of course, begins a university in 1880, the free uh, the free University of Amsterdam, as we mm -hmm. know it today. Um, and so they saw their project as 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 a work of reformation, I think, more than anything, and and applying. Calvin's theology in a way that was a, a, appropriate to the moment. And so they were willing to be creative. Um, so we, we like to say that it's neither, it's it's both ret retrieval, uh, but also progress at the same time um, is kind of the mindset that they were working with, I think. Mm -hmm. So Kuiper was a politician, very successful for yeah. a while, very successful politician. Um Hmm. I'm trying to figure out how to word this. How are contemporary neo-Calvinists in the West, and I'm thinking, you know, about my context in the U.S. Um, are there are there ways in which Kuiper was involved politically, and 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 had great political influence that uh, today's neo-Calvinists are uncomfortable with? Uh, and the reason why I'm asking that is I, I I do see from certain kind of well-known public, you know, people who are known as neo-Calvinists, almost a reticence in terms of engaging in certain areas politically. But but yet with Kuiper, I mean, you know, you know, when you become prime minister of your your country, that's pretty political. Like you've got to declare yourself on on a whole range of very specific things. Am I reading that right? That, 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 that maybe now neo-Calvinism or neo-Calvinists have moved away from that. Help, help me navigate that a little bit. Yeah. That's a difficult question. in A lot of ways, Todd, but, but actually one way to, to think about this, perhaps, especially in the North American context is actually see the kind of newer form of two kingdom theology, maybe in mm -hmm. terms of Westminster, California, as actually a permutation of neo-Calvinism rather than the opposite of neo-Calvinism that respect. Okay. Um, I mean, it's, it's a bit distinct in the sense of, okay, Kuiper was a prime minister and he wanted a distinctly Christian view of absolutely everything. Yeah. But what, um, what overlaps between the two kingdom movement, as we know it today, not necessarily past forms of two kingdom theology and Kuiper's vision is that firm distinction between church and state that right. there should be, two spheres of existence here and God yeah. is sovereign over the state in a way that he's sovereign over the church in, in a very distinct way. So I think that that needs to be said here that, that one of the ways in which neo-Calvinism has that neo or an updating form of, of Calvinism is their denial of establishment, um, their mm -hmm. denial of an established church model. Right. Right. So when Kuiper was a, um, the prime minister and, and as he's thinking about his own political theory, he actually argued that if you are a Christian governor, you have to be a Christian prime minister, a Christian statesman in a way that is in accordance with the time of today, which is a time of God's common grace. Mm -hmm. And this is a time of God's common grace. We're called to be coexisting with non-believers. 
And if God is sovereign, we have to acknowledge that his sovereignty demands us to coexist with non-believers. So Kuiper's argument was actually, ironically, if you have a Christian minister, you will actually um, allow for more freedoms and toleration than if you had a secular um, state, if you had a secular prime minister. Why? Because a Christian recognizes that the image of God is intrinsic to every person. And so religion is not just superstition. Mm-hmm. Religion is actually intrinsic to what we are. And so we should allow for freedom of religion and not enforce a kind of naturalist, secularist hegemony mm-hmm. that pretends to be the public sphere, whereas the Christian faith and other faiths are just private. So now Kepper um, develops this idea of pillarization, where each worldview, each perspective has their own parties, their own schools, their own institutions, and yet they live side by side alongside one another, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So so that's the the political theory angle, which I mean, we actually don't really get to as much in the book. Right. Right. We wanted to show the dogmatic um, mm-hmm. leanings from it. And they were saying, we want to draw from that older traditions um, and, and their arguments about natural knowledge of God, their arguments about the image of God, their arguments um, about common grace, for instance. I want to mine that to show forth how Calvinism, Reformed theology can actually engage modernity and actually better account for the very modern ideals that the Dutch people wanted, which is freedom of religion, religious diversity, and toleration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a disestablished way of seeking a Christian commonwealth. And, and they were trying to do that from the ground up rather than in, in any sense from, from the top down. So they reject any sense of establishment, but yet they seek the commonwealth at the same time. Okay. Uh, and, and, and part of that is they want the ministry to be so impactful in the world that uh, they govern the people in the way the people want to be governed. Uh, which is through the rise of of a Christian of, of a Christian party, right? Yeah. So, um, so it, it's a it's a more grassroots idea of seeking the Commonwealth. They're not post millennial. Uh, Kuiper and Bobbink were not, but um, mm-hmm. yeah, okay. it's in- interesting. When we, you know, when we think about neo Calvinism, we typically think of the kind of issues that we've been discussing so far: uh, issues of culture, issues of church and state, et cetera, et cetera. Does neo-Calvinism bring anything uh, specific to the table relative to the Christian life or to church life? Uh, is there something distinctive that we can find within that tradition that that enriches our understanding of what it means to be a Christian within the inbreaking of the kingdom here in the church congregation relative to the means of grace? Yeah, thanks, Carl. I mean, one of the things to say, as Gray just mentioned, is that all all that we have talked about so far, the political dimensions, the political the political theology, if you will, is not really what we're we're up to in the book very much. What we're up to is uh, bringing out the the dogmatic distinctives and mm-hmm. uh, the dogmatic distinctives uh, of this movement. One of those, as it pertains to the church, would be uh, an emphasis on an ecclesiology in relationship to the kingdom of God. Uh, so ecclesiology in relationship to eschatology that gives rise to a theological ethics that um, is is really centered on reflection and it's uh, the implications of the fact of the kingdom of God to come. So uh, one of the mistakes that neo-Calvinists of later generations have made at times is to speak in ways like uh, building the kingdom. Um, Kuiper and Bavink have no time for, for that type of language. And instead, they want to talk about uh, the organic church, the church that's commissioned and sent, the essential church, uh, Christians in relation to Christ, uh, union by union with Christ, um, that, that the fact that they're sent into the world to witness to the kingdom of God in every sphere of life. 
So uh, the big one of the big implications, I think, of the neo-Calvinist theology is the the movement and push of the organic church to be uh, witnessing to God as salt and light in all the spheres of life, never building the kingdom, but projecting the kingdom uh, in, in, the, in the current order, um, um, uh, showing forth the kingdom, if you will. So that, that would be one that comes to mind. Yeah, and so this idea, though, right, this witnessing to the kingdom of God, this idea of Christian witness in the organic church being scattered and sent, it's not meant to showcase, I think, like, oh, when we're doing Christians, you know, the, the typical objection is well well does this mean that there's a christian view of math or plumbing or whatever else right but 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 the emphasis here is that everything natural everything creational is good and christian existence is natural existence right so um in that way therefore this this is the motif of grace restoring nature christians are called to be truly human in that sense right because grace restores nature and then the second emphasis as well we want to bring out is that neo-Calvinism provides an impetus for engagement with culture um, that doesn't just affirm culture, right? Because I, you know, when we take a look at, for instance, Bobbing's Catholicity of the Christianity in the Church and his essay on Common Grace, he argued again there that that oftentimes you go into a t- a, two false binaries: either you divorce yourself from the world, thinking that you're pure—that's a donatist move. That's a mistake because you're not thankful for the way in which God is sovereign, even today, as He was sovereign in the past. People are still made in the image of God. You're called to engage the world. But but the second false step would be that the other side of it would be just to conform to the world as if Christianity doesn't witness to the created order. Um, so, and, and, and therefore Christianity in that sense challenges the misdirections of culture because they are actually misconstruing nature, misconstruing um, creation. So in that sense too, the Christianity has a, and the neo-Calvinism has a very, um creation affirming um nature affirming kind of theology it's not just about us against the world but actually it's creation affirming because grace restores nature to to kind of play off of a phrase that our friend truman here is kind of making more famous social imaginary so kuiper and bovink are living in a time that has a very, very different social imaginary than we do in the west today i mean compare the netherlands of you know, Kuiper's day to, to, to what it is, um, today, what, what, and this may be too broad of a question, but, um, what is, what does neo-Calvinism look like in a culture that is not just post-Christian, but increasingly anti-Christian, because that's a very different thing than, than Kuiper was dealing with. And so it seems to me then that, you know, um, neo-Calvinism has to kind of flex with that. And so what does that what does that look like when it moves out of a, a a culture where the social imaginary, where where people kind of agree on a lot of sort of certain worldview issues, where pretty much everything is now up to grabs, and indeed the Christians themselves are looked at not just with some suspicion but with great hostility? How does that how does that play out with the presuppositions of of, of neo Calvinism, if that makes sense? Yeah. This is the kind of question that I think that arises pretty often uh, mm-hmm. with the discussion of this topic, and I think it's it's a good one and an important one. I think I would I would qualify it by saying, in some ways, this question has to be considered in a case by case basis, mm-hmm. um, in terms of what culture are you talking about, what city, right. and what exactly uh, is the the distinctions that we need to make between the church and the world at, at yeah. any given time. However, I, I would say that in general the neo-Calvinist posture 
is that the church should always be for the world because God is for the world. Mm -hmm. And so it's a posture that wants to build bridges for the sake of the kingdom of God, uh, witnessing to it all, all at all times rather than putting up fences. I mean, that that's the neo-Calvinist posture. So it, it would push us, I think, away from... Uh, you know, as people like to talk about some type of fortress mentality, an expectation of the world to come into the church or to uh, to, to build big walls to, to keep the people of God away from the world. Neo-Calvinist theology tends to push one uh, to being for the world in any way that, that they can. So, so pointing out uh, because of common grace, the things that nevertheless are still good about the the order of, of culture that we live in, and yet never doing that without confrontation, right? For the sake uh, of of persuasion unto faith in in, in Christ and in, in the ethics of Christ, uh, sanctification after justification, right? And mm-hmm. and so um, that that would be, I think, the general posture that that a neo Calvinist uh, theological orientation would would lean one towards. How how that looks that d- completely depends on the city mm-hmm. and, and the village and and all sorts of things like that. But it right. would it would certainly be one that um I'll I'll, I'll stop talking with this just to say that uh, we have a posture for the life of the world because in common graces the the service of common grace to special grace tells us that that God Himself loves His creation and loves. Uh, the world that he's made, and and so the the neo Calvinist adopts that that kindness and patience with the world, uh, re- trying to reflect the God the God who is his kind and patient with with the culture with the Babylonian captivity around the church. Well, it's very interesting, and it it seems pretty clear to those of us looking from the outside that the the group, uh, for want of a better term, that sort of circles around James Eglinton in Edinburgh, who's been a big inspiration for the recovery of, of Barving, the translation of Barving, of course. Uh, I noticed today I got an email from Crossway. There's a, a book by J.H. Barving that's been translated that's just uh, coming out. Yeah. Clearly, there's uh, there's an agenda here to, to promote neo-Calvinism as a very fruitful resource for the modern church. Uh, what's next? What's the next step in this? What's your next project? Do you have something else uh, in the hopper at the moment that you're working on? Yeah, we've got we've got a lot of things lined up. Um, so we're, we're kept busy. So the most immediate thing would probably be a translation of Boving's Christianity and Science, which was his companion to Christian Worldview, uh, which we translated for Crossway as well back mm. in 2019. Yeah. So it's it's going to be a wonderful text because that's where really Bavink dives into an application of what the Christian worldview looks like for higher education and the formation of a Christian university particularly. So I think that's going to be of of high interest to a lot of people out there, especially those engaged in education. Um, The second most immediate thing after that is our TNT Clark handbook to Neo-Calvinism. One of the responses to this particular book that we wrote for Lexham is that uh, what about the other generations? You know, how does Bobbing relate with Herman Doeverd? How does Bobbing relate with Planinga? How does Bobbing relate with um, Burkhauer, right? And and why are there so many different trajectories after Bobbing and Kuiper? Well, this handbook, I think, handles that, that qu- those questions because we have 40 authors addressing different aspects, genealogical trajectories of neo-Calvinism and the legacies of neo-Calvinism as well there. Um, Lord willing, that's going to come out early 2024, maybe even late 2023. We'll see. 
And I've got um, one book, uh, a manuscript that I've just completed on Bavink and theological anthropology, which hopefully is coming out with TNT Clark as well. Um, just considering not only his understanding of the metaphysics of human nature, because that's really, really important, especially in our current cultural moment, and also really highlighting the way in which he foreshadowed, he anticipated the rise of German nationalism back in 1904, 1908, and the race consciousness, he calls it, um, that was driving um, German nationalism um, in his own day. Very prescient, incredibly prophetic in that respect. And uh, that hopefully would be submitted by September. We're just going through some reviews there right now. Yeah, I think We're, another just quick quick mention would be that uh, I'm involved in, in those projects. Gray um, Gray was talking about, and uh, but but we're excited. One of the things we're trying to do in this book is suggest that um, the the dogmatic work of Bob Inc. and Kuiper needs to be paid attention to in a way that would, uh, Lord willing, produce um, constructive dogmatics in the contemporary, uh, a, a tradition, uh, or I should say a part of the neo-Calvinist tradition that has not really developed very much since probably somebody like Burkauer, um, that that focuses uh, constructive writing for the current world uh, through the lens of a, a neo-Calvinist dogmatic type text. And so um, looking at their model uh, and, and updating their material dogmatics for today, what would that look like? So, uh, you know, we're excited about the potentials of, of other people engaging in, in projects like that. So we'll, we'll see. Good. Sounds excellent. Um, again, our, our guests have been uh, Corey Brock and Grace Sutanto. They are uh, the authors of a, of a very helpful new new volume, Neo-Calvinism, Neo a Theological intro, uh, Introduction, published by really wonderful publishing house, uh, Lexham Press. A lot of Lutherans over there, but man, they're doing good work and giving us a lot of great stuff. And and again, if yes. if, if you'd like to learn you know, more about kind of the continued relevance of of reform dogmatics and uh, think through issues, you know, you maybe you've heard terms like common grace and that sort of thing. Um, uh, they really help. The authors really help uh, unpack some of these and uh, and some of its implications in terms of how do we think about God's sovereignty in. Uh, not just the world in general, but actually, you know, in my neighborhood, in my city, um, what does that look like? And what does it look like for the church to, to be present? What is the church doing in the world? Um, and so it's uh, it, it, it's a really fascinating read. It's a good read, and uh, and we commend it to you. Um, and, and if you'd like to receive a copy, you can go to our uh, website, mortificationofspin.org, um, uh, every month. Very fortunate souls uh, are awarded free books from us, and it actually does work. And so go to our website, enter to win a copy of this, and and while you're there, write a, uh, write a massive check to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals so that they can continue to provide Carl and I with the types of luxuries uh, that we have become accustomed to. And uh, uh, so glad that you joined us today. Again, thanks to our guests, and we will look forward to being with you next time.
Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. Thank you.